Well, today, this is the last uh, sermon in this series uh, where we were talking about how God speaks to us, and today specifically how God speaks to us through community. And before I get going on my main points, I really want to hit on more of a warning or an exhortation uh, that I believe is necessary um, against one of the greatest threats to community, and that is individualism. And specifically, individualism in the West uh, has grown so much and is such a value of our culture that psychologists who aren't believers had to classify individualism now as radical individualism because we have loved the idea of individuality so much that just saying it by itself is not good enough. We're more extreme than the historical version of it where we have to have radical added on to the beginning of it. Joseph Hellerman, in a lengthy quote from his book, When the Church Was a Family, says this. He says, they call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group, so we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. Our culture powerfully socializes us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over the connections we have with others in both families and our churches, so we run from the painful but redemptive relationships God has placed us in. And then he ends with this, the tune of radical individualism has been playing in our ears at full volume for decades, and we are dancing to the music with gusto, and it is costing us dearly. Individualism is a threat to community, because when we put our priorities above the group's priorities, what happens is we focus more on project self instead of the group. We make our preferences God's preferences, and we believe that whatever we want is what God wants for us. We make our brothers and sisters into competitors instead of friends and family and community. And when it goes to its worst point, we actually ask the question that is probably the most dangerous question someone can ask living this life to community, and that is, what are you doing for me, is the main question you ask of anyone or any place that you go. And when we ask that question, what we do is we turn a covenant, covenantal relationship, which is what we have all agreed to to enter into membership of this church as a covenant together where we pursue life with one another. We dig into the hard things. We don't run away from conflict as what you do in covenant. But when we ask the question, what are you doing for me? We turn that into a contractual agreement of I will do for you as long as you do for me where we say, I'll stay here as long as you agree with everything I agree with. I'll stay here as long as you add value to my life. I'll stay here as long as I like the songs you sing. And we can't do that, church, because it moves us from worshiping God and hearing Him teach Scripture to just products to consume that are no different than anything else in the world. We could talk more about this, and we could really talk all day about this idea, 
But I just wanted to give a brief exhortation before we got going into community, because this is just such a big threat that we face in our society. So when we move past that, if we move past that, we move into community with love and vulnerability and serving one another, I believe that God will speak to us. And specifically today with two just simple points, I believe that God will speak to us through each other and that God will speak to the world through us. So those are our two points today, and then we'll end with just a word that we felt as the elders on Thursday praying and and talking about how to end this series, we just felt the Lord say something specifically. So we'll go through those two points and then end with that word from the elders. Let's pray. If you don't mind, just take a moment to pray and ask God to speak to you this morning and that you, your heart would be open to him. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We just pray that you would just use this time this morning. Amen. All right. Well, in the May of 2021, uh, we had, or my family had packed all our bags from our house in Uganda. We moved, we took the eight-hour car ride across the country to the airport, got on a plane, uh, and took the two long legs back home to the U.S. Then we arrived in Houston, Texas, to the airport at IH with a welcoming of you people in this room. Some of you in this room were at the airport with signs, with hugs, with warm greetings, and it was a great moment because it was one of which we, uh, later Brittany and I talking, were saying, hey, we, we finally got back to the people that know us. And then shortly after that, we went to a mission house not far from here that a church, another church owns that lets missionaries stay there. And after everyone had left, we do the natural thing that you do when you come back from being gone is you look at what food is there that you never had for the last two and a half years in Uganda. And so first off, we found the stash that the, the church, not this church, the church we we're staying at, uh, had left for us. Um, and they, we knew that because they left a note. And it was great. It was a good stash of food. But it was like, okay, you know. And I'm not trying to knock them. Like, they did the best they could without knowing who we are. Uh, but then we found the stash of food that the Hope people left for us. And it was good salami, good cheese, bluebell ice cream, queso, chips, salsa, a good bottle of wine, just all those things that you're like, man, these people know us. So through snacks and through food, the Lord was speaking to us through you guys that we were seen, that we were known, and that we were loved. With each dip of queso, it was just music to our ears of that people know us and love us. And the Lord sees us. And I say that in jest, but also I'm serious. I I truly believe the Lord speaks to us in even those small little ways through good food and just good friendship. On a more serious note, um, the Lord also speaks to us through sharing words with people and then giving it to your brother or your sister. And a personal story of mine on this note, and he's here today, Alan Nippers. Uh, In 2016, I had my ministry time when I joined our church And during that time, he felt like he received a word from the Lord, and he shared it with me. And then he texted it later, and I saved it. So I'm going to read for you exactly what he spoke to me that he felt like the Lord was saying. It spoke directly 
to the healing that I just received from the Lord in that time. And it says this, Jordan, my son, I love you, and I'm proud of you. I have made you exactly as I want you to be. You do not have to be perfect because I am. Look at what I have for you. Be the head of your household. Lead Brittany well. Love Braylon and Jack deeply. Press into me. I will give you amazing joy and hope. A man that at the time I barely knew allowed God to speak through him to me in such a powerful, powerful way. So God speaks to us through each other. The text this morning, I'm going to read again, says, Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we grow up into Christ, and every single part of the body is moving and working together, unified, we are growing up together in Christ, building each other up and speaking to one another in love. And notice the text doesn't point out any specific part of the body outside the head, which is Christ. Every other body part is wrapped up all in one because every single part of it is important. Every joint, every ligament, every part, every muscle is important to the whole body. And so there is not one of us in this room that is lesser than each other. We are all in this together to grow each other up into Christ, who's the head. When we are pursuing God together in community, we naturally should serve each other, love one another, take care of each other's needs, provide food for one another when we need to, step in when hard times come up, be a shoulder to cry on for one another, finally give someone a date night by providing babysitting, Help someone with a ride somewhere when the car breaks down. Those are all things that we should do. We should fast for one another, pray for one another, seek the Lord for one another, share a word with one another when we hear him speak to us about someone. This is what community looks like, and it's how God speaks to us. Because we so often put a priority, and rightfully so, on Scripture and the Spirit speaking to us. But we also need to put a priority on how God speaks to us through other people. Because as, about, as Ephesians says, we're all doing this together, building each other up into Christ. And I want to quote one of the greatest communities in all of literature, literature sorry, uh, from the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien says this, but it does not seem that I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. It all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you can keep it yourself. And I love this last line, but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. A community of people is many things. But one thing that it is is a people that you cannot trust to leave you alone when you're going through a hard time. It's a group of people who aren't going to let you be alone in the hardest moments of your life. And when we push against individualism and we come together, we show each other 
the presence of God through someone sitting next to you. And I just want to speak to two specific groups of people in the room that I just felt uh, like I needed to address on this topic. And that, the first one is this. Maybe uh, even in this sermon series where God's speaking to you, you're like, man, this has been great, but I just don't feel like I've heard God speak. I'm reading my Bible, but it's not coming alive to me. I'm asking God to speak to me through his spirit, but I just, I don't know. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. Maybe you're just confused, but one of the ways I think God is, or I don't think I know God is speaking to you, maybe not through scripture, maybe not through a spirit, but just through a friend, asking, how's it going today? How can I pray for you today? Or just being welcoming face, giving you a hug when you had a bad day. That person may not know it, but I guarantee you, God put that person in your path in order to speak to you, that you are known and you're seen, and you're loved. So he might not be speaking to you in the ways that you wish he would through Scripture or through a passage, but God still speaks to you. It just looks a little different than maybe you want it to. Another group in this room is maybe you just don't feel adequate enough to be a person who gives a Bible study or leads something or shares their testimony like Ben or comes up and leads worship or does anything like that, and you're, you're viewing something as less than, like, well, what I bring is less than what people on the stage can bring or what that person shared. I feel like this one person just walks with God so deeply. But I want to say to you, your, your presence in our body and your acts of service to our body are felt so deeply and need it, and it speaks to all of us. It really is true that actions can speak louder than words. You might not be speaking all these eloquent things that you learned in your time with the Lord, but your service to our church is speaking to everyone how much you love us and how much you care for us. And it is no less than me standing up here sharing the word of God. We need your presence, and we need your acts of service. We all need each other in this. So when we come together, we move out of our individuality and we live out the biblical vision of community, one founded in Christ and unity of the Spirit, and we speak to each other. And I believe in turn, God uses us to speak to the world. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Excuse me. The church is not supposed to be hidden from view. The church is supposed to be a city on a hill shining brightly for the world to see so that your good works can be seen and glory will be given to our Father who is in heaven. The church is supposed to be an alternate city than the one we live in, an alternate culture than the one we live in, an alternate worldview than what we live in. Andy Crouch, elaborating on this point in his book, Culture Making, says this, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside our churches. Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators, 
people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done. Why aren't we known as creators, people who dare to think and do something that has never been thought of or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful? Too often in church, all we do to the culture around us is critique it, condemn it, or we consume it. Instead, we need to be people who cultivate it and create it, and creating a culture that is different then. We're a city on a hill. We're an alternate way of doing things. We operate under a different system. A church community is not just a place to come and be known and loved and hang out with each other. It's also a place that we show a different way of living to the rest of the world. And do we have fun and hang out? Absolutely. Do we take care of each other? Absolutely. But while we do that, we're creating something different for the world to see. And in so doing, it's more like we're a signpost pointing to something different. When people see us, they should see how we're living and operating. And again, I don't just mean on Sunday mornings, I'm talking about throughout all of life, throughout how the church functions all the time, not just on a Sunday, how you function all the time, not just on a Sunday, in your family, in your job, and your interactions with people, the way you do life. It is creating a city on a hill, a different way of living and functioning. And when we do that again, we're a signpost pointing to the way that God has set up his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? It's actually better than anything we could ever come up with. It's better than anything this world could come up with. When church community lives this out, it speaks to a broken world that there is still beauty worth fighting for. There is still hope in the midst of hopelessness. There is still love and redemption through Jesus Christ and his renewal of all things. Our early church brothers and sisters knew this really well, and they lived this out. Uh, and in uh, three different stories I want to share with you this morning, and these all come from a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by a man named Alan Crater. And he talks about this in depth in the book. Uh, I'm going to summarize these things because if I just read it, we'd be here a long time. So I'm summarizing from his book. Uh, the first one uh, he actually does quote a guy named uh, Justin, who was a believer in Rome uh, in the 100s or 200s kind of range. And Justin writes this. He says, Many who were once on your side, talking about unbelievers, have turned from their ways of violence and tyranny, talking about they have become believers and are part of the church now. And they did this by, they were overcome by observing the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors. No, and nothing of the strange, sorry, I misread that, the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors and nothing of the strange patience of their acquaintances. And here's the point I want to make. And one way that people became believers was by experiencing the way that they did business with them. Justin is quoting, quoted here saying, hey, one of the ways that people in Rome became believers, a pagan society, was just by experiencing how Christians did business with each other and how their transactions went with each other. So if you work in the room, and you think less of your work because maybe it's not a church kind of thing to do, but your work is so important, and there's purpose in your work, and in your work you're creating that separate thing, that city on the hill for people to see. And people will see how you interact with each other, how you treat each other, 
where you cut corners or don't cut corners, and it speaks to them, the kingdom of God. Another convert from uh, paganism into Christianity, uh, he lived in Italy, and I'm going to do my best on his name, all right? His name was Lactantius. It's pretty good, right? It sounds right, and it sounds Italian, I guess. Uh, anyway, he, uh, Alan summarizes uh, his experience that uh, someone in the church wrote about him, and he says this, he learned to be hospitable, to ransom captives, to maintain orphans and widows, and to care for the sick. With them, he has learned to repudiate all violence and killing, including the impatient acts of aborting and exposing unwanted infants and killing and warfare. He has learned to trust God and not be in a hurry. And one thing I want to point out about him and his story is, did you know in the time, that time in the Roman Empire, specifically in Rome and around Rome, it was a very common practice that if you did not want a baby, specifically a female, because they couldn't carry on the family name or have power and authority in that time, or specifically if they were deformed or with special needs, it was common and expected that you would leave that baby out in the cold to kill it. It's called exposing infants. That was normal. So what was the church's response to this? One, they didn't do it. But two, the early church in Rome was full of young girls. It was full of kids with deformities and kids with special needs because Christians would go around searching for these babies, and they would pick them up and take them to their homes, and they would be their moms and dads because they saw the beauty of God in every person. What a beautiful heritage that we have of our early brothers and sisters living a different way than society was, creating a city on a hill that was different. The last one from the book was in the year 250 in the Roman city of Carthage the church had uh, just gone through an intense time of persecution and that only that time of persecution only ended because a terrible plague broke out across the entire Roman Empire one of which the scholars believe at the time killed uh, millions of people across the entire Roman Empire and it was so terrible that uh, people who didn't get sick would flee the city and they would just leave behind their loved ones who were sick. Spouses, kids, it didn't matter. They would just leave and go because they did not want to get sick. And if you didn't leave the city and you stayed in the city, all you would do is you would just throw out your sick loved ones on the street to die because you didn't want the rest of the family to get sick. So what was the church's response to this? Also on top of that, the the locals were actually accusing the Christians of causing this to happen because they weren't believing in the pagan gods. They thought the gods were punishing everyone because of the Christians' unbelief in the pagan gods at the time. Well, what we have in a biography about the church leader in Carthage, a man named Cyprian, uh, he had this response. And I promise you, I'm not making this up. This is exactly what is said. This, it just happened to work perfectly with what we're doing, all right? Uh, he went to the scriptures 
specifically the teachings of Jesus, to listen to what the Spirit wanted to speak to them through listening prayer so they would know how to respond in their community. He went to the, he went to the Scriptures, he went to Jesus, the Spirit for their community. That kind of sounds like our sermon series, right? So he did that. And specifically, what happened to them was they read the Sermon on the Mount. And they read what Jesus said about how to treat your enemies and pray for them. And so their response to the people who had just got done killing their friends and their family, blaming them for one of the worst plagues in history, they would go to the people that were, had the plague, that were thrown on the streets, and they would walk through the streets giving them basic care and needs as they were dying. And they would pray with them. Risking their own lives with a deadly, deadly virus. Like that's the heritage we stand on. Like that's our early church brothers and sisters being a different culture than the one around them. Being a city on a hill so it would give glory to their Father who's in heaven. And through that, the church exploded after that time because they couldn't, could no longer say that these people didn't love them or care for them because of the way they cared for their dying. Over and over again throughout history, when things go terribly wrong and crisis breaks out, historically we just see the church over and over and over again running directly into the conflict when everyone else turns and runs. Over and over again. And why do we do this? We do this because that's what Jesus did for us. He could have just stayed in heaven. But instead, he chose to run directly into our pain and our suffering and our sin so that he could save us when we didn't deserve it and no one else would and no one else could. He ran directly into it. So all we're doing is following his example on how we should live and how we should function as a community and how we should speak to the world around us. So when we throw off our individuality and we combat that and we allow God to come into our midst and speak to each other and we allow him to speak to the world, we become an irresistible city on a hill that people are drawn to just because you're like, hey, how do you, why is it like this? How do you guys, I've never been around people that love each other like this. What do you mean you had someone to call? What do you mean you had babysitting uh, for a date night? Like I, that just doesn't exist in a lot of places for a lot of people in our world. I want to shift now, kind of wrapping up the time of what God can speak through us in community and to the world. And the last little bit, I want to focus in, uh, just kind of wrapping up the sermon series on what we felt like God was impressing on our hearts as elders as we were praying and talking. Um, just going through this fast has been an amazing time of just clarity of God speaking. Of going through the sermon series and pressing into ways that God is speaking. And then on top of that, I uh, really feel like the Lord is doing a lot 
uh, with the people that come on Thursday nights to pray for our church and for our city. And just standing on top of all of that, we just felt like the Lord was saying something really clearly to us. And that was this, that however much of God you've experienced in your life, in your whole life, or in moments, or just in this past month, we really feel like he was saying there is abundantly more. There is abundantly more of him. And we don't say this as a way to rebuke anyone for anything you've done or not done or how you feel or don't feel. All this is is an invitation of God saying, there is more of me than you've ever realized. There is more of my spirit to pour out on your life. There is more depth and riches that you have yet to experience. There is more of him. Anything that we have ever experienced is really just scratching the surface of how great he is and how big he is, how much love he has, how much care he has, how much love and care he has for the world and for you. And we really believe that he wants you to press in more. We pray that this fast is not just, hey, the fast is done. That's great. Now let's just go back to our normal way. No, he's saying there's more to press in even more, to fast and long for him to come in your life and the life of our church and our cities and communities even more. But here's the thing. He's not going to force you. You have to desire it. He's not going to force you into the depths. He's just going to invite you. And so you have to desire it and want it and ask him for it.